The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. So just imagine you're in Wellington. Maybe you've come for a holiday or you live here. I want to take you on a journey from Te Papa, we all know that, an iconic building on the waterfront, around the corner to the Embassy Theatre. For those people who know the Lord of the Rings saga and know that's where the first Lord of the Rings movies were shown, where all of those big presentations were made, that's where we start off in our journey, going up Cambridge Terrace. So just imagine you're there at the Embassy Theatre and you're looking up the Cambridge Terrace towards the Basin Reserve. It's a huge, wide open space. There's three or four lanes on either side of this really big central, what appears to be a traffic island, which in the past was used for trams and as a way to get around the city. Now, of course, it's dominated by cars. But how might that change? How would you get from the Embassy Theatre along to the Basin Reserve, around there, and then up Adelaide Road towards the Wellington Hospital, for those of you who know what happens after you get past Basin Reserve. Because that is right at the heart of one of the big clashes in our political economy for decades to come. It's all about the car parks along Cambridge Terrace and then up towards the hospital, up Adelaide Road and up Ridderford Street. What is going to happen to those car parks? The fate of those car parks, 150 in total, including 50 along Cambridge Terrace, in many ways is a test case for whether New Zealand is really serious about dealing with climate change and dealing with changing the landscape of our cities to make it friendlier to people, to medium density housing, and ultimately to reduce those climate emissions. Why do I care about 150 car parks? Well, there's a story here. The council in Wellington announced in March they were going to spend over $200 million really beefing up the cycle networks in Wellington, with the spine of that network being Paneke to Poneke, that main cycleway that goes from the waterfront near Te Papa all the way up Cambridge Terrace, around the Basin Reserve, up Adelaide Road, past the hospital. It really is the core of the network. So if you get that right, you get the whole thing right. The plan was to use a couple of the lanes. Remember that big, wide-open space, multiple lanes. Use one of the lanes for cycling in particular. Blocking it off, painting the lines, making it safer, getting a lot more confidence about using it. So instead of walking or maybe having to take a car to get from to Papa all the way up to the hospital, maybe you take a scooter, maybe you cycle. Maybe it's an electric bike, but you feel comfortable doing it because it's separated from all the cars. But in the process, you're going to be using some space, and in particular, car parks. So this begs a really interesting question. Who owns the car parks? Who has the rights to say what those car parks should be used? Now, on the face of it, they are public spaces, in effect, owned by the council and the public. And because these are 
big sort of nationally important roads, this is something that the central government gets interested in as well and particularly helps to fund some of these changes and has a stated ambition of shifting modes from motoring to cycling and walking. So this is a crucial battle, not just for Wellington, but for the nation as a whole. What's going to happen to those car parks? In March, the government said, right, let's get cracking on these cycleways. The construction was about to start, and then those businesses alongside Cambridge Terrace. You might remember that that is, in effect, the main thoroughfare for car dealerships in Wellington. It is Car Dealership Row. And the main man there is Miles Gasly. And he owns the rights to sell Fiat and Jeep and Alfa Romeo and a bunch of others. And he and a group of the businesses there protested against the cycleway and are taking it to court. So it was about to be launched and built. Remember, it's much faster to build one of these than actually building a brand new road or drilling a tunnel. About to be started, along comes the legal challenge. Months and months of delays. This won't be sorted until we get to mid-September. And it really is blocking progress in changing the mode shift of Wellington. So how are we going to do this in a proper nationwide rollout? How are we going to get over the Miles Gasly and co protests about the use of those public spaces, which are car parks? Who actually owns the car parks? What are the rights to use those car parks? Now, a lot of businesses have set themselves up with the expectation the car parks will be there, people will be able to zip in, quickly park, and go and look to buy another car, maybe change cars. However, they are public spaces. Now, you pay for a car park, but in effect, it is controlled by the council. So what we're about to see is a battle over who gets to use, and in what way, public space. And so far, it's before the courts, but this is a symptom of a problem that we have in our political economy. How do we allocate scarce resources, scarce public resources, without having a price? And that's why I think the fate of those 50 car parks along Cambridge Terrace is so important, and why, ultimately, we don't get to solve our climate change and our medium-density housing problems unless we bring in congestion charging. That's this week on When the Facts Change, where I'll talk to Catherine King, who is NZTA Wakakotahi's Urban Mobility Manager and knows in depth about how to make that change and how to do it when you maybe don't have the tools you need to make it happen with a price. In many ways, it is the clash of our age between anti-car, if you like, generations who want to shift quickly to cycling and walking, and those who are pro the car. In many ways, it's an anti-car, pro-climate generation against the status quo. This week on When the Facts Change. Well, Catherine King, welcome to When the Facts Change. Tell us what you do for a living. I work for Waka Kotahi, the New Zealand Transport Agency, and I am their urban mobility manager. Does that mean uh, that your job is to make sure that our cars and trucks move faster on our city roads or what? 
it's more about creating the sorts of towns and cities that are accessible and open to everyone. It's about creating vibrant towns and cities that meet all of our needs, that enable us to get around in ways that are good for our health, good for the planet, um, enable communities to connect, enable kids to play in the street and make the best use of, of the space we have in our towns and cities. So it's about thinking about all the ways people need to move um, and uh, rebalancing our system so that more people are able to get around um, in, in, on foot, on bike, on scooter. We have more choice in the way we move. Well, this morning we were both at a, an event in Newtown in Wellington where the uh, Transport Minister, Michael Wood, announced a package of spending of about $30 million over the next year or so to um, help bring in cycleways, walkways, um, look to change our urban streets, or at least start to change our urban streets to make it easier for cycling and walking. Can you tell us a bit more about you know, what NZ Tia Wakakota here are doing in various cities to try to um, bring us closer to those sorts of places that we've heard of he heard of overseas, the Parises and the Amsterdams of the world. Streets for People is a fund that is supporting certain councils across the country. And what we're doing uh, with them is a whole package of uh, support that helps to build capability in people who are trying to um, open up streets for walking, for cycling, creating spaces for dining, um, creating spaces for communities to connect. Uh, the program looks at a broad range of support from capability for the people doing the, these sorts of uh, projects to the way we might um, use our, our uh, legislation um, to support projects to the way we communicate and engage on them right through to design processes and, and then how, how we put them in the ground. So it's a full end-to-end -end, uh, support package that we are um, working with councils on across the country. So what is that $30 million spent on? The bulk of the, um, of the investment goes to the physical changes that are happening on streets. So where we're um, putting in, say, uh, concrete separators or crossings or um, the changes that we know make it much more comfortable for people to walk, more comfortable for people to ride, um, parklets and things that we've seen popping up uh, around the country that give additional space for things like dining. Um, the changes that start to open up our streets and make, make um, really great use of the space that we already have there. Um, so the, the bulk of the investment is for those sort of changes and, and the ability to test out and adapt and um, make them right for the future. So what's the um, lessons that have been learned overseas in how to make these changes? Because they're not easy to do when a whole bunch of people are used to driving their cars and trucks on those roads, need to for their livelihoods and feel entitled to because roads are for cars, not for people. 
So we took a look at um, what was happening internationally and what we were doing here to understand what we might want to pick up from best practices um, from abroad. And with that, we saw if we look at investment that we've made, say, over the last decade in this country, particularly for walking and cycling, 95% or so of that was creating some, some really important parts of our walking and cycling network they were off the street. They were um, alongside waterways, alongside many of our um, state highways um, through parks. But just 5% was focused on making the best use of what we have there, the existing street assets. And we know when we look internationally, most networks, most of the um, streets that people travel on to get um, places safely, um, whether that's walking, cycling, scooting, they are utilising street space. They're utilising what's there already. Uh, so we took a look at um, how they're doing that. And in many cities, uh, they're learning that the ability to try, test, adapt, and, and make changes over time can ultimately build more support, build momentum for, for changes in cities, um, and enable people to really experience um, the changes that are being made, um, get stuck in and involved with those changes. Uh, and over time, you see Oh, a potentially a, a number of people who worry about change, um, but once they've experienced it, they've had a, um, a chance to try out moving around um, in that space, most people support those changes. So we have cities like Barcelona, who's um, rolling out their Superblock program, where they're shutting many streets um, to traffic across the city um, to create more outdoor um, outdoor space for people. And the first ones of those Superblocks were quite contentious, and now they have a big uh, waiting list of streets who are asking for the change. Similar we're seeing with um, projects across, for example, the UK, where they're, they're um, rapidly rolling out, rolling out literally hundreds of um, streets with, with restricted traffic to create quieter streets for communities. Again, some concern about changes in the start, but people get to experience them and, and see the benefit for themselves. How do those cities make those changes? Because change is, is hard, and often the people who don't want change are actually in charge, and it's quite easy to stop change. I mean, you just need to make a big noise, throw a few legal challenges in, delay things enough so that the politicians who want the change get voted out, and then and um, you can rely on the status quo and you can rely on um, noise to um, avoid change? I think the majority of us um, can find it hard to, to read a plan that comes out, a technical plan, and then engage in um, traditional consultation. And um, particularly where it's complex urban street environments, um, whereas we see when it's possible to, um, whether it's just for 
a weekend um, or a longer period of time to lay out what those what those potential changes could be. We shift from in a traditional consultation environment where we might see a small number of people generally, um, when, when we track the figures, it's around five, six, seven percent of people who really um, don't support, don't like the change. And it's really challenging when you're working in a council to engage with um, what we call the silent minority, the the mums and dads, the kids, um, the people in a community uh, who might not have enough time to really get involved in a consultation process. When we give them the opportunity to uh, test out and trial changes in a street, it lets them interact with and experience the change. And by and large, what we're starting to see is, is people experiencing and reporting more positively about that opportunity to experience a change and understand really what the benefits, the disbenefits or, or potentially things you might want to shift around would be. I think it's, it's, um, it's like if we might want to make a change in our house. We, rather than um, using lots and lots of paper to design up things, you can shift around your furniture in the living room to understand what you might want to do with a change in your house. That's an easier way for us to experience change than, than trying to um, design out on a piece of paper. So we've done a few trials uh, in New Zealand on making streets safer for pedestrians and cyclists. And one example is an Onahanga uh, in the midst of the first lockdowns when it seemed like a good idea at the time to uh, essentially block off a, what had been a, a bit of a rat run and make it um, friendly for cyclists and walkers. And then all hell broke loose. Can you, eventually it was abandoned after a forklift, um, a rogue forklift magically moved the various boxes that were creating this um, uh, trial pedestrian cycling area. What did you, what's been learned from that exercise? So last year, um, Onihunga was part of our Innovating Streets for People program. Uh, that program enabled us to work with uh, around 70 projects across the country. So it was, was a lot more projects than we're working with uh, this time. The, the program um, enabled councils in quite a short period, 12 months, to uh, test out um, these sorts of projects in, in their own communities. And we, we invested a lot in evaluation of the program. So, so we're able to pick up the lessons from that program and build in um, what we might need to change, what we might want to keep into um, this program, Streets for People. We know from that program that um, around 88% of projects were taken on to become permanent. So they're still there today um, in either the same uh, trial phase or they've shifted into uh, a permanent change into that environment. So loads of um, projects across the country that enabled us to learn huge amounts. 
Um, we learned a lot around how we might want to do engagement and and how we might want to build partnerships with with communities. And so for Streets for People, we've we've extended the time frame to allow that really good quality conversation to happen uh, in a community around what the trial might involve. And it also builds in more time for adaptation. And, and that really means once we make a change in a street, it's likely that we didn't get some things quite right. It's potentially um, the planter needed to be over there and not blocking that person's driveway or, or whatever um, the issue might be. And so that adaptation time is really critical um, for people to respond quickly and shift something that really doesn't work or to learn um, perhaps you need to make that section a bit wider so um, there's more space for tables and chairs or, or something like that. So 88% of the 70 projects were successful and became permanent, but Onehanga didn't. What went wrong in Onehanga? The project worked very quickly. It was one of the first ones um, that that was underway um, in, t in the total number of projects across the country. And um, I think they've learned a lot in that community around what scale of change they might be uh, ready for. It was a big ambitious project um, that was looking at a, a, whole, a whole community block. And they learned that a lot of people in, in the, who lived in the space that uh, the traffic was restricted in um, enjoyed the quieter streets. They enjoyed seeing their kids out playing. But people living around um, the area who used to drive quickly through it um, found that frustrating. So we, we know that um, we need to do more work with the wider um, community, with people who live uh, around an area, for people to understand which way might I need to drive now if I can't drive that way I normally go, um, and build in more time um, to help people understand other ways they might travel. Um, we know from the similar sorts of projects that we've done in um, Tasman, Nelson, both had really successful similar projects. There was, there was a lot of time put into helping people understand other ways they might travel. They might want to walk or cycle um, the journey that they once drove or a different route they might want to take. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25-26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. 
Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. At Zed, we're all about moving with the times. And now it's time to be part of the climate change solution and move on from fossil fuels. As a company providing fuel to people all over the country, we also know we have a real opportunity to lead that change. We're committed to keeping Aotearoa moving by providing the right energy for everyone. We believe that innovation in fuel and how it's used can make a huge difference to our planet. Find out more at z.co.nz. Stepping back and looking at the bigger picture, our society is built for double cab utes. People living in standalone homes in the suburbs, driving to and from their workplaces, which might be in the centre of town or might be on the other side of town completely. Not to mention, you know, people going to school, going to play, playgrounds, sports facilities. It's all about the car. And the dream is the car. And the way you see yourself is the car. It's no accident that all of these ads for double cab utes are about men showing off their power bulges and putting their boats on the back and their um, mountain bikes on, on the tray. How can we really shift to this different place when all of our incentives around investment, which are buy yourself a chunk of residential land and leverage it up and make a lot of tax-free capital gains. Transport, which are buy this double cab ute and avoid um, fringe benefits tax and effectively use these roads for free. Uh, Everything is set up for that. Is there any real point in trying to change it when all of those other incentives around fuel, around cars around land are stacked on the other other way? I think the system um, is certainly built for a small number of people um, to, to get around easily. But we know when we go out and ask communities, if you, if you go into your local primary school, I guarantee around 90% of kids at that school will want to walk, will want to cycle, will want to scoot. And parents um, of those children want their kids to be able to travel independently and, and for them to be free from worry and concern around their kids. They want them to be able to roam like many of us did as kids. And then we know there's this big um, portion of our community who don't drive. Um, I think they're often invisible in the way we imagine ourselves to be in this country. But there are a lot of New Zealanders who don't drive, whether they choose not to, whether they can't, whether um, they're too young yet to drive. 
So our system might be um, built, our streets are often built for people to drive quickly in their cars and to be able to park easily. Um, but that isn't what the majority of people want in, in our country. Most people want choice. They want to be able to walk to their dairy if, if, if that's where they need to go and get their milk. We know 65% of journeys that everyone makes in this country are under five kilometres, so a pretty easy distance for most of us to be able to scoot or, or walk or cycle. Um, but we also know um, what's preventing them from doing that is that our streets don't feel safe. They don't feel comfortable for them to be doing that. They don't often feel um, what many of us experienced, for example, in, in lockdowns, um, that there are lots of people around, that communities um, are, are full with neighbours that they can chat to. Um, often our communities are severed by people driving quickly in their vehicles. So we, people like myself, working um, in agencies that are responsible for changes in our streets, we have a big job to play in adapting our streets, opening them up to people uh, walking and, and cycling and scooting. Uh, and there's a lot of change that we need to make in, in order to um, reduce the speed of traffic on our streets and, and ultimately create the space so that everyone can access the places that they need to go in the right way that, that suits them. How much um, resource is being put into these changes? There's $30 million for uh, reshaping our streets. Streets uh, for people. Streets for people. And reshaping our streets, that's another thing. That's right. And how much is involved in that? So the program that we're working on is uh, is complex. It's a big puzzle. We know uh, there isn't a silver bullet that will fix our transport system. There's many, many parts of it that need to adapt. So we found last year with Innovating Streets that a lot of people working in councils wanted to make changes. They wanted to enable play streets, for example, where communities can shut their own streets themselves and not have to go through a long, expensive process to apply to shut their street just so their kids can go out and, and play in an afternoon. Those sorts of challenges that we saw communities experiencing led us to developing the Reshaping Streets package, which is a collection of um, changes to our legislation which will enable um, the sorts of things that I've been talking about to more easily happen. So um, streets can be adapted and changed through a, a formal uh, legislative process that, that we don't currently have um, and, and which currently open councils to potential legal challenges around the testing and trialling of changes in streets, but also enable a whole range of things that we know um, have been really successfully proven internationally and in fact were part of our toolkit here. In the 70s, we saw a lot of low traffic streets being introduced and, and, and we're ready to go and try them again. The sorts what, of what happened to those streets? Many of them are still there. So many parts of our, the older parts of our cities will have um, what I technically call a modal filter, but it will be a, 
a planted area in the street that prevents people from driving in both directions. It's the sorts of changes that protect local streets for local communities to enjoy rather than them being open to people shortcutting through their neighbourhood. And so where I'm from, in Tamaki Makoro, in, for example, Ponsonby and those, those suburbs around um, the centre of Auckland, there's a lot of those sorts of features in place that make it relatively hard to race through a quiet residential street and protect them for those residents to enjoy performing the role that local streets should play. So reshaping um, uh, streets is a proposal, a package of things that could be done to accelerate this process. What sort of changes in the laws are being proposed to make this faster? So currently, for example, if we want to put in a, a bus shelter so people have protection from the wind and, and rain when they're waiting for a bus, which is course really important to our experience of using um, our bus services, a council would have to run a, a specific and quite lengthy consultation process and, and this is going to um, bring it in line with regular consultation that's required on other changes in our streets. Um, it's very similar for pedestrian malls, so here in Ponake you have Cuba Street as a pedestrian mall and we have several of these across the country. Currently, um, using the legislation we have available, they, they are challenging to do and take a really long time to do. And yet we know from this country and, and internationally that those sorts of um, pedestrian streets are, are wildly successful. They're the streets that you flock to when you go and visit a city in another country. And, and we know that... Um, they're really important, an important part of our city centres here. So there's a, a, a raft of changes. Another great one that's um, close to my heart is around play streets. Um, as I mentioned, at the moment, it can be really challenging if you want to follow all the, the right procedures and rules to let your kids play with the neighbours' kids across the street. And the play streets um, changes will enable uh, communities to do that by popping out a wheelie bin or something that you might have easily available. And um, for a few hours a day or, or when that suits your community, enable kids to get out their cricket bats or their football and, and use that, that space um, in the street to connect and that's going to be increasingly important as we have more people living in our cities. That community space, of which our streets are our, our biggest asset in terms of community space, we want that space to perform many functions. It, it needs to be flexible for um, communities to use for market days, for um, play streets, for lots of different uses. And that shouldn't take months and months of form filling to go through to achieve that. So that's on the legal side. Uh, we've sort of talked about the politics, but what about the finances of shifting from big, wide, you know, six-lane roads in the centre of town that I'm scared to put my kids on on a bike, um, let alone go down on on a scooter myself, uh, 
And you can see how that six lanes needs to be changed to three or four or something, and a whole bunch of that space needs to be handed over to people to walk, to scooter, to cycle, to maybe have as a new parklet, or maybe it's an extension of a, a bunch of street-side restaurants. Um, what are the finances of that? You know, does it expensive to convert them? Uh, how long does it take? Do you have to do a whole bunch of construction or is it just, just paint some new lines down? I mean, how does it work? So in the past, we have often uh, built off-road paths, um, often using quite complex engineering interventions, big bridges and structures. And for some parts of our network, those, those are really important. And we've got some great, great parts of our network now in place. But as we're entering um, really in, in responding to the climate emergency we're, we're in and, and building um, streets that will meet the, the needs of um, future generations, we need to think about how we can do that faster. We know that the typical transport project can take five, six, ten years or so. Whereas when we see um, both here and um, cities internationally um, utilising the, the space they have, making really sensible choices about how they allocate space between different road users, those sorts of projects can be rolled out in, in a matter of weeks, days, months. Um, we know that they are significantly more economical um, to deliver than, than building these big, complex off-road paths. Um, when we look at another city, um, I like to point at a um, city like Seville. They introduced their entire uh, cycle network in, within a year. Um, they reallocated, I think it was about 4,000 car parking spaces to achieve that. Um, and they jumped from the sort of um, percentage of people riding we have now, about 2%, to almost 10% of people. And they did that um, really quickly, and they did that really economically. So there's lots of examples in, in internationally that, that we need to harness and utilise um, for our own cities here. Um, there's lots of great lessons from there, and we're picking up more and more through our programs um, here in New Zealand. So uh, Waka Kotahi and the government and councils are spending literally billions of dollars a year on building new roads, uh, retreading roads, uh, lots of money on bitumen and concrete and steel and pipes and the likes, billions and billions of dollars. There is $30 million dollars for this particular project, yet the minister described it as a response to a climate emergency. Just flipping that on its head, could we save billions of dollars and achieve um, emissions reduction and improved congestion times by shifting a whole bunch of people out of their cars on that 65% of trips that are actually less than five kilometres out of a car or a double cab ute onto a scooter or a bike or, a, or walking and actually achieve less congestion, less emissions, with hundreds of millions of dollars less spending 
much of it on concrete and steel, which is actually adding to the carbon emissions in the, in the atmosphere. We fundamentally need to um, pick up the pace at which we are giving people true transport choice. And I use the word true because across the country at the moment, if we just look at cycling, but similar for, um, for our walking networks and our public transport networks, we have really limited unconnected networks. Um, for cycling, 17% of our urban network is connected and often what is built is uh, unconnected as sections um, that sit on their own in different parts of our cities. We know that uh, the big shifts that other cities have seen around the world have come when they have rapidly connected up parts of their network. So that means we need to think about all the ways that we can do that. So for Streets for People, um, I like to think of it as a snowball. It's $30 million of investment that's building capability in people working in councils to reallocate street space. But coming uh, soon are changes that we'll see, for example, to the way we maintain our streets. Uh, there's work underway to look at how do we maximise every dollar that we're investing uh, in our streets and, and a big chunk of what we um, do in our towns and cities at the moment is maintaining the assets that we have. There's other places around the world and, and a few good examples from this country. Tasman was a, a really great example of this in the past year. When they reseal a street, they will often look at, is this an opportunity for us to um, make it easier for people to cross intersections? Or is this an opportunity for us to use some of this street space um, and make it safer by protecting people who might be riding bicycles or scooters. So rather than um, maintaining our streets exactly the way they are today, it's making really sensible decisions about maximising that opportunity of having people out doing works um, by starting to build the sorts of streets that we need um, for everyone to be able to travel the way that is good for their health and our planet. Catherine King, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thank you. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.